Well, this morning we come to really the peak of the Sermon on the Mount. If the sermon itself were a mountain, chapter 7, verses 13 to 27, would really be the summit of the whole thing. Because it is this point at which Jesus really concludes His teaching, and He calls His listening audience to respond. However, He frames His final exhortation around a series of warnings, really four warnings, in fact, that are designed to really shove the listener off of the ropes and into the ring. What is His message? It is this, unequivocally, choose the way of Christ. That's His final message, to choose the way of Christ, and we're going to see that. It's not the way of the world today, by the way. The course of this world is marked by many things, and it's really difficult to summarize all of the things that mark the world, certainly in just an introduction, but I want to just give you a couple of markers of the course of this world, the way of this world. First, the way of our world is built primarily on self. Despite the prevalence of causes and charities, if you really look at how things are marketed uh, in this world and in, even in this country, in this culture, how products are designed and marketed and geared toward uh, the audience, really it's, it's marketed toward self. Our culture exists to glorify and magnify self. And even when we consider in the world charities and benevolence, it all seems to go out the window as soon as it gets in the way of self. Second, the way of the world is focused primarily on fleshly desire. Fleshly desire, self-satisfaction and pleasure and ease. Really, the motto of the world today is if it, if it feels good, then go ahead and do it. Third, the way of the world worships the creation. It worships the creation. Whether it's actual plants and animals and oceans, the planet, if you will, or whether it's the worship of people, celebrities and world leaders and entertainers, etc. Worship is rendered to the created order. Fourth, the way of the world is that which hates God. Now, there is a large percentage, I believe, of people in the world who will claim to love God, but when you get down to it, it's a God of their own invention. To proclaim love and allegiance to Jehovah, to the triune God of creation, the God of Scripture, to Jesus Christ, is to elicit an absolute worst kind of hatred and vitriol imaginable. Lastly, the way of the world opposes the truth. It opposes the truth. Never before in in the history of modern civilization has there been such an affront and an attack on truth. We're living in what's called the the postmodern age. Postmodern meaning that not only have we tried to go beyond and to, to identify truth in all places, now we've concluded as a society that there is no objective truth. We've gone beyond that. Now truth is relative, according to culture. Over the last several hundred years, we've seen an arsenal of ideologies, weapons that attack the truth. Again, we've seen this in rationalism. We've seen it in modernism, postmodernism. The fallen world does not want to be told that truth exists or that such truth belongs to Almighty God. Even popular Christianity today finds itself really more aligned with the world than with Christ. Many consumer-driven Christian fads are built on the appeal to self. 
Much of what is popular is built on one's own desire and ease and comfort. And if you don't believe me, then look at the hedonistic claims of the prosperity gospel. The seeker-sensitive movement, the attractional church model that, it, it, that gears everything around getting people in the door and appealing to their senses, appealing to their sensibilities, to their feelings, to their emotions, to their felt needs, and oftentimes at the expense of the gospel and of sound doctrine. Furthermore, there are growing trends toward embracing the creation at the expense of the Creator. Worship of celebrity has infiltrated evangelicalism like a Trojan horse. An effort to reimagine Christianity in order to be more cutting edge and more palatable. In doing so, core doctrines are oftentimes redesigned, reimagined, or flat out jettisoned from the faith. There's very little talk about sin and repentance and judgment, and even the truths of the gospel. The God of popular public Christianity is a lot more like Buddy Jesus than about the glorious Christ. With regards to truth, even the church today, if you cling to absolute truth of Scripture, oftentimes you're regarded as judgmental, graceless, unloving. The worst thing that that an evangelical could be called today would be a fundamentalist. That, that word is used pejoratively all the time. But my question is, what, what do you mean by that? Jesus, they'll claim, accepts you as you are and doesn't expect you to change. But that is not the Christ of Scripture. None of this even comes close to the doctrine, teaching, life, and testimony of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. He presents a very different Christianity, a very different mandate. And to behold, much of what we see, even on a popular level, in much of Christianity today, you would think that Matthew 7 was not in their Bible. But let me tell you, my friends, Matthew 7 is in our Bible. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 as we bring this Sermon on the Mount to a close today and over the coming weeks. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has been teaching the crowds, and according to chapter 5, verse 2, the primary audience was his disciples that had been following him. As for the content of the sermon, Jesus really seizes on the accepted teaching of Old Testament law. He's using Old Testament law, and he's expounding on this law to present a a spirit-filled, spirit-led kingdom ethic. He takes the, the law of God and he applies it to us as believers. And while we will not see the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount realized in the present age, believers are certainly called to strive hard to obey the commands of Christ. Again, this is meant to be applied to us. We are to internalize this and to try to obey the Lord in spirit, in truth, to the best of our ability. But not, all, not that our obedience saves us because it doesn't. Keeping laws and doing good deeds, that is not uh, the gospel of Christianity. It's not the, the work of do. However, once we're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, a life that has been redeemed by Christ, a life that has been transformed and has been saved, will bear the fruit of such transformation. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not the way for us to get right with God, but once we have been made right with God through Christ, this is the way of life for us. Again, the end of the sermon brings us to a crossroads. Jesus has been instructing and instructing and instructing, and we've seen over the last couple of months that this has really hit pretty close to the bone. I've seen many of you shifting in your seats as I preach, 
As I study, I shift in my seat. I get very nervous because some of these things are very hard to hear. It cuts to the very core of who we are. It reaches every single facet of our light right down to the heart as it's supposed to because Jesus is the Lord of our hearts. And so after all of this intense teaching, this powerful teaching, this instructive teaching, Jesus gets to the final place where he wants the listener to choose. And there is no middle ground here. When you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there is no middle way. There is no gray area. It's very clear that Jesus is laying out two possible options and is very emphatic on us choosing one. In Matthew 7:13 through 27, Jesus offers four distinct warnings that effectively draw the line in the sand. Four warnings. And they're presented actually in pairs. It's very interesting if you were to examine it. We see in verses 13 and 14 really two ways. There's only two ways to go, and we're going to talk about that today. Verses 15 to 20, talking about false teachers, he really compares it to two kinds of trees, two trees. Verses 21 to 23, two professions, two professions of faith. And then finally, in verses 24 to 27, there are two builders that we see. And so really, these are several pairs, two ways to go. We're going to talk about each of these pairs as we move along. And again, all of these things are designed to bring us to a place of reckoning. He does not want us to get to the end of this sermon and sit on our hands and just wait around to see what happens. He's calling us to action. And today we're going to examine really these two ways in verses 13 and 14. And I'm calling this sermon the narrow gate. And you're going to see why in a second. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. These are the words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Again, looking at the, this terse warning, it's important to note that Jesus is really employing the use of a very effective method in rabbinical teaching. Uh, many of the, the Greek teachers even use this method themselves. Now, certainly, rabbinic teaching, the teaching of the rabbis, that's what I mean by rabbinic Uh, is really uh, oftentimes reflexive in the the question-and-answer method. They use a lot of question-and-answer. And And, and many methods use this as well, uh, the Socratic method, for example. However, this two-ways method of instruction, this is not a question-answer dialogue kind of a thing. This two-ways method is highly effective in driving home the point. This is not the place for conversations. This is not the place for dialogue. There aren't many possible answers here. He's not bringing us to a place where there's lots of answers in the room. It's clear here that there are two choices, and Jesus is going to tell them that only one of them is the right one. So this is very simple, but not easy. Truthfully, God has been doing this for centuries, even before Socrates. When Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and about to enter the promised land... God really conducted an elaborate 
object lesson recorded for us in Deuteronomy 27. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you what's going on. And what he does is he sets up the group of people. There's approximately 2 million Jews that have crossed out and they're wandering around and they're about to enter. And he takes half the people and he perches them on the top of, of Mount Gerizim. And the other half of the people he brings up to the top of Mount Ebal. So into the adjacent mountains. So there are these two large mountains with a valley in between. And one of these mountains, they recite God's blessings for obedience. That's on Mount Gerizim. And on the other mountain, on Mount Ebal, they recite all the curses for disobedience. So there are two mountains, two mountains with a large chasm, a large valley in between. And the lesson to them, the object lesson was very clear. And it's this, there is a mountain of difference between blessing and cursing, between rebellion and obedience. Earlier in Deuteronomy 11, God had told them, he said to them this, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, and a curse if you do not listen and turn aside from the way which I'm commanding you today. Again, two mountains... Two ways, one clear choice. We see this again in Psalm 1-6. A warning to walk in the counsel of the Lord. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. Again, two ways. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Or even Jeremiah 21-8. Jeremiah's plea to King Zedekiah. He's urging him to obey the Lord and he writes this. You shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. There's no middle way. Jeremiah says there's the way of life and the way of death. Pick one. And so the Lord Jesus is really functioning in the same covenant-keeping capacity, promising life to His people. And this crowd of people had a choice to make. The Messiah had arrived. And he would soon go to the cross and die to pay for their sins, securing salvation for his sheep. And the question is, are they going to choose to follow him or not? Again, this is toward the beginning of his ministry. He's telling them right out the gate, you've got a choice to make. You're going to follow me or you're going to turn away. And he tells them what they ought to do. Look again at the text. He says very emphatically here, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Again, verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, immediately we're faced with a stark contrast. Jesus here, in just these two verses, he's presenting two gates, two ways, really two groups of people, and two destinations. There is the narrow gate. Versus the wide gate. There is the narrow way versus the broad way. As to populations, there are many who find one way and only a few that find another. And then there's the most startling sort of pair of all of these. One destination. One destination leads to life while the other destination leads to destruction. Now in this pair here, these two verses, there's only one command in the two verses. There's only one imperative that's used, even grammatically, one imperative. And it comes at the beginning of verse 13. Look at verse 13. It's the very first word. This word, 
enter. Enter. That's the only command he gives in these two verses. Enter. And it's clear that he wants his followers to enter through which one? The narrow gate. That's very clear. There there could be not any more clear statement than Jesus could make in this pair than this. Enter through the narrow gate. But then he's going to expound as a rhetorical device. He's going to expound on the choice that he does not want them to make. He says, enter through the narrow gate. But let me tell you about the other option first. What is the wide gate? What is the broad way? That's what he's going to talk about here. He says, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. What is this wide gate? What is this broad way? Again, in short, is the way of the world. Paul describes this aptly in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, just listen. Paul says to the church, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, he says, were all formerly living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. He calls this the course of the world. And he notes here, this is the natural way of sin. It's the way of the flesh. It's the way of disobedience. It's the way of lust. It's the way of Satan, which Paul calls the prince of the power of the air. See, ever since the fall, when sin entered into the world, the whole course of the world has been led astray and followed hard after Satan. His influence is far-reaching, and it seems to be increasing daily, doesn't it? The Apostle John writes a lot about this, and he uses the world, this this term, the world, as shorthand for this evil way. Whenever he talks about the world, he's talking many times in this way. Now, we know from John 3.16 that the Bible says that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. But he's talking about, in that context, for example, uh, all the peoples of the world which are, uh, he prepares the way for salvation. So that is a general discussion about the peoples of the world. But it's very clear that John is using in many other contexts the world itself to refer to what is sinful and dark and lost. Let me give you an example. First John 2.15, John flat out says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. And then he qualifies He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. He says, all of this is not from the Father, it is from the world. And then he adds this, and the world is passing away, and also its lusts. Now, to bring all this to bear in Jesus' dialogue here, Jesus doesn't say anything in verse 13 about sin, about darkness, about Satan, about corruption, about disobedience, or anything else. Well, why? Well, frankly, because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. All he says is that there is this wide, broad way that leads to destruction. Nobody wants to raise their hand and volunteer for the way that leads to destruction. And so they know what he's talking about. His Jewish audience would have been familiar, at least on some level, with what he meant. And so that's all he has to say. But for us, I believe it's clear that this is the wrong path. This broad way, this wide gate, 
that leads to destruction. We're meant to know this is not the right way to go. Let's examine what he says then. First, he says that this specific gate is wide. Now, as for the metaphor of using a gate, it may be something as simple as a door or just a generic word for an entrance. But the main point here is that the way to this kind of life, whatever gateway you're going to pass through to get to this kind of life, this is very wide. Very wide. The Greek word that's used here is platys. It means wide, it means broad, but the imagery here in this word, imagine sort of a a multi-lane interstate highway. If you ever travel on not, New Hampshire doesn't really have very wide interstates. You go in other big cities where there's five or six or even in some cities eight lanes of traffic going in one direction. It's very broad, there's a lot of people on this way, lots of traffic moving very, very quickly. That's the imagery of this word here. In truth, there are many ways into this gate. Many, many ways. The world is very good at enticing us into worldliness. Furthermore, our flesh is very good at inventing new ways to sin against God. Every time there is a new impulse, a new technology, a new idea, our sinful flesh devises some new way to rebel against the commands of God. It seems every day you turn on the TV or click online, there is some new time waster. There is some new fad. There is some new guilty pleasure, some new perversion. I'm astonished when I read news articles about some new thing that's come out, some new perversion, and I'm thinking, where did this come from? We invent ways of evil. In fact, that's what Romans 1 actually says. In Romans 1, a Romans 1 culture is... Has a propensity to be, as it says, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Then he adds, inventors of evil. A Romans 1 culture is a culture that invents ways to sin against God. And this gate of worldliness, of sin against God, is so wide and it seems to get wider by the day. Jesus says this way is also broad. The way here is a pathway, but really the word way is referring to a lifestyle. How you live your life. And he adds the way is broad, it's it's spacious. Really, this pertains to the popularity and inclusiveness of this kind of way of life. That's why I always cringe when I read the words popular Christianity. And we see it all the time. Popularity really is a trademark of worldliness. But this broad way is more inviting. It's more accommodating. We can fit lots of people under this tent, under this way of living. Now, to be clear, Jesus does invite all who would respond to him in the obedience of faith. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your heritage, your race, color, creed, tongue, tribe, nation. It does not matter where you've come from. Where you've been, your history, it does not make a difference to God. So when he puts out the gospel call, it is meant to go out to the entire world of people. There is no kind of person that is excluded from this gospel call. That's good news. We don't just preach to one kind of person, one one way of looking a certain way. No, our gospel call goes out to all people. But the world will tell you 
The world will tell you that you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do, you can believe whatever you want to believe and still go to heaven. It's so broad. In fact, the only people that are excluded from this all-inclusive system are those who are narrow enough to believe the Bible. But this broad way panders to every kind of impulse, every kind of desire, every kind of sin, every kind of behavior. And so what do you call it when people are encouraged to do whatever they want in opposition to the established standards and ethics and conduct of God? It's called lawlessness. It's called lawlessness. It's anarchy. It's rebellion against the law of God. And Jesus flatly says, this is the way that leads to destruction. The Greek word that's used here, apoleia, in the theological dictionary of the New Testament, explains here, this word is definitive destruction. Not merely in the sense of the extinction of physical existence, but rather an eternal plunge into Hades and a hopeless destiny of death. If you follow the course of this world, this broad, wide, popular way of sin, you will lead yourself only to destruction, and everything that you hold dear will be swallowed up, even your own soul. Who is it that enters this wide gate? Arguably, these are some of the saddest words in Scripture. Jesus says in this verse, the way of destruction, look at this. He says, there are many who enter through it. There are many who enter through this way. Friends, my heart breaks for this untold many who enter this way of destruction. Every time in the last three weeks that I've read that word, many, my heart wants to cave in. But we're meant to heed this warning. And I'll tell you, whenever you see popular, paired with Christianity, you have to hear the words of Jesus, that this broad, wide way that many are following is destruction. Just because many people do something doesn't make it right. Truth is truth based on rightness, not based on popularity. We don't poll the audience for truth. You ask God what is true. And so when you see the crowds following the course of this world, know that you're not missing out on anything but destruction. Which way does Jesus Tell us to go, my friends, because that's where I want to get to this morning. I want to know, what does Jesus say about us, about the way he wants us to go? Listen to what he says. Look at verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate. Again, this command, enter, applies only to this one way. Only to this one way. But of this, he says that this gate is narrow. The Greek word is stenos. It means constricted. It's narrow. This gate is so narrow. In fact, one commentator likened this gate 
to one of those turnstiles. You know, you go to the subway and you have to walk through a turnstile and only one, the bar goes in front of you and it clicks once. Only one person can go through this narrow turnstile at a time. That's the idea. That it's so narrow, it's so constricted that only one person, this narrow way, can pass through this gate. The gate is narrow. Then he says in verse 14, he says, the gate is small and the way is Narrow, But this second usage of the word here is actually a different Greek word. It's not stenos, narrow. It's thlibo. It's actually difficult, oppressive, distressing. That's the word here. This word is often associated with the tribulation that comes from persecution. Not only is the entrance to this way of life small and narrow, but once you're on this small footpath, not the huge six-lane car uh, car motorway, but once you're on this little tiny, small, barely worn-down path, it's extremely difficult on this journey. In fact, Jesus later calls the disciples to listen to Him, and He says that they will most certainly have trouble in this life. Anybody who promises you as a Christian that things are going to get easier and better when you're following Jesus, they're lying to you. Now, I will testify to you, and you can probably testify to me, that there is more joy, there is more peace, there's more assurance, there is more security in knowing Christ. We have hope knowing Christ. But I'll tell you, life doesn't get easier here. It's difficult. And Jesus said it would be. He's promised that. Now, it's not the way that the way of Christ is laden with burdens and personal agonies. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine that if we take on His yoke, He would shoulder this weight. And He says His yoke is actually easy. His burden is light. We rest on the grace of Christ. And so, yes, it is going to be difficult in this world. It's going to be oppressive in this world. And the question is, why? Because when you follow the narrow way of Jesus, you have to die. You have to die to the love of the world. You have to die to the behaviors of sin. You have to die to yourself. Dying to yourself, my friends, is difficult. It's painful. Furthermore, all the baggage that you're carrying doesn't fit into this narrow gate. Your works don't fit into this narrow gate. Your deeds don't fit. Let me tell you, your pride doesn't fit. A man that is swelled up with pride cannot squeeze himself through the narrow gate of Christ. There's no room for other saviors. There's no room for other religions. Jesus said Himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If somebody tells you you can go to heaven without believing in Jesus, they're lying. Because Jesus Himself says that He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He says elsewhere in John 10, He is the gate. He's not just the way of life. He is the entrance to the way of life. The way of life is only as wide as the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He's the only way. 
But let me assure you, my friends, that this way leads to life. To life. And while it includes a life that is blessed and joyful here and now, abiding in Christ. Remember in the beginning of the sermon, he says, Blessed are those who, and he lists off a series of things, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted in this life. He pronounces blessing on those who follow Him by faith. However, this also pertains to eternal life in heaven, in Christ, in glory. And so the question is, do you want to enter life? If you want to enter life, then you must enter through the narrow gate and walk on the narrow way. What does this way look like? How do I know, pastor, if I'm following this way? Well, my friends, it is the sum of the Christian life. And we've seen this taught by Jesus all throughout the sermon. What is this narrow way of life? It is the way of blessedness and humility and repentance and gentleness and spiritual hunger and mercy and purity and peace and persecution. It is the way of rejoicing and witness and light and testimony. It is the way of spirit-led obedience to the law of Christ. It is the way of love and reconciliation and fidelity and trustworthiness and forbearance. This is the way of generosity and prayer and self-denial and trust. It is the way of discernment and kindness and benevolence. My friends, it is the very way of Jesus Christ. That is the way that leads to life. In fact, before believers were first called Christians, they were called, according to Acts 9-2, the people of the way. They lived their life according to the way of Christ. That's how they were identified. In the end of verse 14, Jesus tells that all who come to this way of life But he says something very different than the previous phrase. He says there are few who find it. Few. Not many, but few. What does this mean? Turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Jesus is teaching in the villages on the way to Jerusalem... And someone asks him a pertinent question. And his answer sounds very similar to what we've been studying already this morning, with only some slight variation. Pick it up in Luke 13, verse 22. He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Are there just a few, Lord, who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and he began to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught on our streets. 
And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Again, a very similar Sentiment, we understand this pertains to the way of salvation. Again, verse 23, Lord, are there only a few? Are there only a few that are saved? Everybody wants to go to heaven. And you you turn the TV on, you click online, and I'll tell you, it's presented in such a way that it's so broad. And and we pander to the lowest common denominator. I see it all the time. Some new celebrity gets caught out in public wearing a cross, and all the bloggers go ballistic. Oh, so-and-so is a Christian now. But yet their profession and their life and their testimony and their understanding of the gospel doesn't even come close to just even being a new believer. Or some person holds up a Bible, and all of a sudden they're a Christian. Or they get stuck going, they walk into a church building and now somehow that makes them a Christian. That's not what Jesus says. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but Jesus gives the way. Verse 25, stri- or 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. My friends, this is so narrow. He says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This should sober you and I. Not to become elitist and say, oh, I'm entering, I'm the narrow, I'm the few. No. Rather, we should look to God and say, Lord, why so few and why me? It should should produce thankfulness and humility and a desire to reach the lost. If so few, I want to grab whoever they are. I want to bring anybody I can, knowing that you're sovereign. But Lord, save more. There should be a desire for us to reach anybody and everybody that we can. But I don't know who's coming in. I have no idea, and neither do you. And so we have to be faithful. We have to be faithful. And preach the gospel to the whole world. I minister as though everyone is in that few. Because I don't know. The problem that we see today is not that the gospel call hasn't gone out. But there are so few who want to follow his way. Why? Because His way is too hard. Not hard to the task, but hard on the heart. The way of Christ is difficult because to come to Christ, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to admit that you're wrong. That you've sinned against God. You have to come clean to God and repent and turn away from sin. And say, I'm sick of doing it my way, Lord. I'm doing it your way. I'm going to follow you. I I reject my way of sin, I reject my desire, my flesh. I reject doing it my way, Lord. Your way is right. I'm wrong. I want to follow you. That takes humility. You have to confess that you need Jesus. And He's the only way to eternal life. 
And then you have to live the rest of your life in obedience to that truth. And again, for the proud man, that's the hardest thing in the world. It's impossible. Jesus even said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man. He's talking about those who are puffed up with riches to enter the kingdom of God. But I'll tell you, for the poor in spirit, for the broken, for the downcast, for the spiritually sick, for the person who knows that they have nothing to bring to the table, for the person who knows that I'm coming to you, Lord, bankrupt, I have no spiritual riches that are pleasing to you on themselves. There are many times I come in this pulpit, I feel like an empty shell of a man. I have nothing inherently in me that is worthy of offering to God, certainly presenting to you, but any adequacy that we have is in Christ. Christ is our sufficiency. Christ is our adequacy. We come to Him broken. I'll tell you, if you come to Jesus broken and empty, then coming to Him is the easiest thing in the world. Because it's all of grace at that point. Lord, I have got nothing. Take me as I am. And then he looks at us who are broken and poor in spirit. He says, you're blessed. Blessed are you. I will take you. And then it's easy. It's easy. Because then he looks at you and says, come to me. And you say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's faith. That's what it looks like. At the end of John 6, Jesus had concluded a hard day of teaching. And He impressed on the disciples, on His followers, the importance of self-denial, of sacrifice. He talks about radical obedience to God, radical communion with God. He gets to the point where He even says, you have to eat My flesh and drink My blood. And they don't even know what He's talking about. But it's pretty radical. And at the end of the day, John records this. As a result of this, many of his disciples, let me repeat that, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Even in John 6, Jesus is here in the flesh. He's teaching. He's performing miracles. Crowds are around him. He gives them hard teaching. And many, even at that point, turned and walked away. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you not want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. My friends, there are only two ways. Two ways. There's not 86 ways. There's not a thousand ways. You can't invent a new way. Two ways. There is the wide, broad way that the populace will travel, but Jesus says that that leads to destruction. And then there is the small, narrow way, the difficult way. And let me tell you, it's unpopular. It's getting more unpopular by the day. Look around, my friends. Being a Christian is unpopular, and it's about to get way more unpopular. But Jesus says, that is the way 
that leads to life. To follow Christ. To run hard after Him. To sell everything in your heart. To tear down the idols. Whatever you set up in worship anywhere else, tear it down. And say, my life belongs to You, Lord. I will follow You wherever You lead me. That is the way of faith. That is the way of the Gospel. To believe on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the way that leads to life. Which way will you choose? Obey the Lord. Enter through the narrow gate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that we are meant to run right into this truth. This truth is meant to be hard. This truth is meant to awaken us. This truth is meant to sober us, Lord. And You give this to Your church to remind us that we are not to follow the world. We are not to lower our standards and compromise. We are not to water down the Gospel and water down doctrine. We are not to live lazy lives as believers. We are not to mix our fleshly desire with some kind of half-hearted obedience. Lord, You are as clear as day that You want us to enter and to choose this narrow way that leads to life. And God, I I beg You, I plead with You that You would call and summon everyone who is listening to the sound of my voice. Certainly our church, this church, Lord. Let there never be, Lord God, a person who sits here in this sanctuary who falls after the broad way and leads themselves into destruction. Lord, let us be the people of the way who follow Christ, who obey You, who hate our sin and forsake our old lives and follow You and chase hard after You and strive to enter Your way. And Lord, You also promise that even though this way is difficult, It leads to life and your burden is easy. Your yoke is light. There is peace. There is hope that you've overcome the world. And so, Lord, we come to you in full hope and assurance, knowing that this way is the way of your people. And you've called us and you bring us and you hold us closely in the palm of your hand. You shelter us under your wings. And You guard us and You guide us. And You lead us all the way to glory. I thank You, Lord, that this is not up to me. It's not up to us to muscle our way in. You call us. You compel us. You draw us by Your grace. Thank You, Lord God, for the kindness and the blessing and the grace of the Gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.